All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Welcome to another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. This is our third episode of season two. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I struggled there. I was like, how many seasons have we had? Two seasons. Two. Uh, three episodes. This is our third episode, and I am here with my co-host, Megan Crozier. Welcome. Hey, good to be back. And uh, yeah, we're really excited. This uh, week, we have a pretty cool guest uh, that we're really excited about. Megan, you want to tell people who's coming up as our guest? Yeah, we got to talk to Joe Lumen. Ah! I know it was amazing. <laughs> it was man, so cool. I love I could her listen so to much. Her talk for hours, man. She, she's phenomenal. And I, I just feel like I soak so much in and she goes pretty fast, but there's so much rich content and everything that she says. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like she is, I don't know. She's just really unique in how she is both like kind of fearless and spicy. And yet she also still has this really, really empathetic, compassionate, like ability to meet people in all different kinds of areas. And I just, I really admire that kind of just I don't know that duality or that not duality, but that, that, uh, paradox that is Joe Lumen, you know, yeah. it's like, she's got all of this and I feel like she's one of those people you could bring into almost any situation. And I would never think like she's going to be, um, outmatched or not be able to adapt because she can just like, I don't know, she can take on anybody. <laughs> and it's it's so cool. Yeah. And here's what I love about Joe. I always say I love when people say the thing and Joe says the thing. That's her thing. She says the thing. She's not afraid to say 100%. it. 100%. And yeah, I love it. And I, I always love how, I don't know if you see this, but men try to jump into her Twitter comments and say, and you know, she gets pushback, but then there'll be other men that come in and say, actually, you're right, Joe, about that. And it's like, Joe doesn't need anybody to come in and into her comments and validate what she says. So um, I yeah, just love, yeah. she's fierce and I love it. I'm here for it. Well, and that's the thing too, is like even on Twitter and she, I think she talks about it in the interview. Um, this is the thing about doing our intros and our interviews uh, at separate times. But I think, I think she kind of talks about like that balance in between like feeding the trolls and like leaving yeah. people alone, you know, and, and that whole dynamic, because she's like, I want to get in there and like get in the mix for the people that are, you know, that are reading that exchange. But also there's some people that are just like, you know, fuck you. It's not, not worth my time. Um, yeah. 
and she has good balance. So yeah, I'm just, I'm stoked to share this interview with her, with everyone listening. It's going to be fun. Yeah. But before we get into that, we got to go to our bit, Cortland. Twit bits. Twit, Twit bits. I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited to be doing this segment every week uh, because you are just like, I don't know. You make me love Twitter. You're good at Twitter. Uh, and I, it, I aspire to be you on Twitter someday. Uh, well, I just love how you texted me tonight before we recorded, like, do we have anything to talk about on Twitter? And I was like, are you doubting that I have Twitter <laughs> gossip? I always have Twitter gossip. So yes, I didn't doubt. I didn't doubt. I just, I just always, sometimes I feel like I, I don't have anything to bring to the table, man. I don't know. I like, I've been on Twitter this week, but you know, it's been mostly reading your tweets uh, and I haven't really caught like the buzz or what's been happening. So, um, well, I, I was, will tell you I was one thing. Off grid yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's good though. <laughs> You're probably more present than I was <laughs> over the holidays. I don't know. But. I don't know if it's more present because I'm, I'm sure that I am just like, investing my digital time into something much more like I got this game where you touch the screen and a knife flips around and around. And it's like basically like the same level over and over and over again. And I played that for like eight hours. So I, um, I can't have those games on my phone because I won't, uh, I won't stop. You know what I did over the weekend? I solved a Rubik's cube because I could not stop. I that, saw that. Did you I, actually solve it? That I, wasn't I a did. brand new Rubik's cube. It was not. I solved it. Um, I can't believe you're questioning that. But I I might have had help from a YouTube video, but it still took a long time and I felt very accomplished when I did it. So Oh yeah, that's still I mean a huge accomplishment. I I've looked up the algorithms for how to do it because as like a, a you know, aspirational nerd myself, I that feels like something I should be able to do and I can't. I can't do it. I, don't I have might have expand. some of those algorithms partially memorized by now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will fully admit it, it was great. But that is awesome. I also had my first viral tweet this weekend. I mean, I don't know. Which is crazy because you've had some pretty like popular tweets. We talked about your Starburst tweet uh, on our last episode and I think it was our last episode. Maybe it was our first episode. Um, I forget now at this point, but uh, that one was pretty hot. That one was pretty successful. You've had some other ones that have garnered some, I mean, in my book, viral success. Yeah, uh, actually, I don't even know what the definition of viral because I there is traction on sometimes. But um, I, this one, I think it just um, resonated with a lot of folks. It was I if you missed it, I tweeted about. When I don't drink for if for listeners that don't know, I have a story about that. It's on my blog about drinking. Um, just for my own personal health and just decision. I don't push that decision on anyone else. But I often get offered drinks. And when I say no, it makes people uncomfortable sometimes. And so they really kind of try to push it sometimes and say, no, no, you definitely should have a drink and have a good time. And so I tweeted out, hey, can we just normalize? When somebody says no to alcohol, not having them have a reason or have to ask them again and, you know, just carry on and move along. And man, did that resonate with folks. And um, people talked about relating that drinking, but also weed 
they get pushed a lot. Some people shared stories about getting their drinks spiked and without consent, having drink alcohol when they have said no, which I think is infuriating. Crazy. But yeah, it was, um, it just kept kind of going throughout the weekend. And I, I wondered if maybe the holiday weekend, it just kind of hit people. But by the end, I mean, I think it, it hit like 88,000 likes yeah. or something like that. So, I mean, it, it was, was just like wild. Thousands of, of like hundreds of replies and retweets. And like, it was insane. I think it was in thousands of retweets. And quote tweets. Um, yeah. People sharing and, and sharing their stories, man. That's the thing. Like, and that's the thing about Twitter is people connect with something and then they share it and it's, it, you know, and, and they're so vulnerable about it because those are real humans that are having real experiences that are similar to others. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's my favorite part of Twitter is the engagement when you have something that multiple people are relating on and, you know, kind of sharing their piece or their take on, um, I love when there's a thread and I can just go through and read quote tweets and kind of just like dive down that hole. I was curious, did you see, this is because I, I consider one of my tweets viral. If it gets 50 likes, I go, I'm pretty happy about it. Uh, and so did you have like people like a noticeable, like retweet from like, Oprah or something like did you how did how did how how was it that it, it grew or was it just all organic it was just small accounts or mid-sized yeah, accounts that were I don't this out? I did not I you know I lost track because it happened so fast and then after a few hours uh, you know I had to mute the conversation and and I did go back and check it every once in a while because I did want to see what people were saying but I just it was blowing up my notifications um on my phone so, but I didn't notice a particular account or anything particular that happened. So I don't know. It was just kind of random. It just hit. It just hit correct. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I saw a TikTok um, a few weeks ago that was like basically just talking about how how odd it is. I think it was actually a pro-marijuana. It might have been a pro-marijuana TikTok um, or advocacy or whatever. But it was just talking about how like caffeine and alcohol are drugs that we just like are like cool with like it was like this person and they were like hey uh hey we're we're starting work do you want me to go pick up some drugs for the office before we get started it's like i thought well, i was i was gonna get some stimulant drugs do you guys want some stimulant drugs uh after work we were thinking about going to get some drugs uh we were gonna go to the drug uh place and 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 go take some drugs together uh just as a team you know for bonding um because people don't think of alcohol and caffeine as drugs and yeah. how socially acceptable they are and how there is this, you know, symbolic nature to it. There's like this, it reminds me of something that, um, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name. I got to look it up so I don't butcher it. Um, Bradley Onishi. Mm, yeah. Am I saying it correctly? I'm not sure. Bradley Onishi. I believe, I believe I am. We'll see. Um, spoiler alert. Brad is going to be on the podcast. Ah, I'm freaking out. We haven't interviewed him yet. And he's like kind of my hero in a lot of ways. So anyway, um, there was an episode of straight, straight white American Jesus. And they were talking about guns and gun culture. And they were talking about how guns 
this is a rabbit trail, I apologize, but how guns were more than guns for a lot of white Midwestern American individuals because they are this symbolic. It's like we've got grandpa's mm. gun and our great grandfather's gun. And there's this like, it's not about guns. It's about family and it's about this heritage and it's the sim symbol. It's the symbolic thing for people. And so then when you talk about gun, you know, you know, reform gun laws and that sort of stuff, people kind of just like, like they just hold it in this different space in their head because it's not, we're not, you know, and Bradley was saying in this episode, he said, when I like to have conversations about guns, I just change the word gun for handheld killing machine. And I just go like, what is your family's connection to handheld killing machines? Like, what is the handheld killing machine mean in the history of your family? And why are you, you know, what what is your passion and what is it about handheld killing machines that resonates with you? Because, you know, when we when we think about it as this object of this thing, right, it's the same way when you call alcohol a drug, Mm-hmm. Um, you start to go like, oh, I wouldn't force somebody to take drugs with me. Yeah. That feels unethical and weird. But, you know, kind of like coming up alongside somebody and be like, come on, have a drink with me feels different. You know, why mm-hmm. is it? What is it that we think of? You know, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting to see the stories and um, yeah, see how that played out. But there's something else I wanted to talk about and from Twitter, another twit bit. I don't know if you've been following Kristen Kobe DeMay on Twitter, the author of Jesus and John Wayne. I believe I do follow her. Yeah, so she kind of got backed into a corner. She was in a debate with, um, gosh, I now I can't remember who Denny the debate Burke was with. Denny Burke what you said, Denny right? Burke, yes, that's who it was. And okay. um, they were going back and forth about her book. And he backed her into a corner asking her if she's affirming or not. And for listeners who aren't sure what that means, um, Cortland, do you want to give what were they what were they debating about? I'm looking at the tweet right now, but like they were debating he was like like countering her assumptions in Jesus and John Wayne or I, and I think ultimately he was trying to discredit her. And I think he was trying, okay. what he was trying to say is, okay, now answer this question. Are you affirming? Because I think he wanted to further say that he was trying, he was, she was discredited from, you know, just don't even listen to her, disregard her if this is how she is. And so, so he would be of the conservative yeah. side of things then, I guess. I, my understanding I is, him. yes, I don't know him either, but okay. based on just my, watching a little bit of it play out and then watching her response. And she did respond. She didn't use that language, but, oh, oh we were going to explain what affirming yeah, is. Yeah. So, I mean, in the, in the classical sense, um, when you talk about affirming or non-affirming, affirming would say that, you know, uh, queerness is a, uh, not only natural and, uh, you know, uh, I guess common, uh, human experience, um, but in religious, uh, or spiritual spaces that it is a, you know, a God given, um, or, you know, kind of God ordained, if you believe in God or you believe in, you know, kind of the spiritual aspect of things, um, that queerness is, is seen just like heterosexuality, uh, by, 
you know, sh- and should be seen by by the church. Uh, it's seen as the same by God. It's a God given orientation um, that is a you know not only natural but beautiful, holy part of human relationship. And so that would be a fully affirming perspective um, in you know kind of the cr- Christian tradition. These denominations that are fully affirming. Uh, can you think off the top of your head? I know the Lutheran denomination, I believe, is fully affirming across the board. Um, it's it's difficult because you have all these like sub denominations. Yes. Yeah. Like I <laughs> so know Methodist like, right now is going through a huge split, and there's going to be some that are affirming and some that are not affirming. So Yeah. And maybe the Lutheran church went through that too. So maybe there's a there's a branch of the Lutheran church that's non-affirming, but I by and large, I know a lot of Lutheran pastors um that are queer. Uh, and I know the Presbyterian church, I believe there is at least a good portion of the Presbyterian church that is affirming and have, uh, queer and, and trans bishops and pastors and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, there's a fair amount of, uh, church splits, denominational splits that have happened around this issue. Uh, do you marry queer folks? If you marry queer folks, do you allow them to serve? Do you allow them to, serve as clergy. Um, it feels and, funny to me, but I feel like there's even like some people who'd be like, Oh, well you could serve at this level, but you can't serve at this level, which seems weird <laughs> to me. Like it feels yeah. like it was like once, once you're going to allow one thing, it's like, let them all the way in. Like this weird halfway mark seems odd, but. When we talked about this a little on our first episode with Judy and her story, but, and then non-affirming would be, you know, we're, they're going to love the queer community, but call it a sin and say that they should renounce that part of their identity. So yeah, yeah that it's uh, a behavioral, uh, a thing that they should change, uh, and conform to heteronormative ideas because those, uh, practices and ideas are, are, are God given, uh, examples of how all human sexual relationships, romantic relationships, family dynamics, et cetera, should work. So. Exactly. Yes. And uh, so anyway, the reason I brought up Kristen Kobe DeMay and did not deep dive into all the comments and tweets around that, but also read her statement, which really didn't say the words affirming or not affirming, but led me to believe that she is kind of trying to make some change from within her denomination. But I wanted to bring it up because it, the same thing happened with, um, I, I started reading the making of biblical womanhood this week and I was tweeting about it and I got somebody in my DMS, um, from the trans community that asked if she was affirming if Beth Allison Barr, the author of that book was affirming. And it just made me wonder, which I don't know, but Beth Allison Barr is a professor at Baylor. And so I, I would imagine that she's not, I have not asked her. Um, but I've thought about this with other authors. And so I just, I guess I've wondered, should we not be reading authors that are not affirming or what, what, what are your thoughts? I don't know. What do you think, Cortland? Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, if you're not going to read authors that are not affirming it, it, it pretty much limits your reading of Christian literature. If, if our, if our bar is going to be publicly, you know, uh, uh, loud allies, uh, affirming the queer community, um, there's not much, uh, you know, a hundred plus years back to be able to read. 
<laughs> because even people who were, I mean, even when you talk about, um, fuck man, what's, uh, uh, the Catholic priest, I'm trying to think of his name and he was an iconic, uh, uh, Catholic writer, um, who was also queer, uh, celibate, obviously as a priest in the Catholic tradition. Um, uh, but even somebody like that was not loudly quote unquote affirming <laughs> because yeah. you just couldn't be. Um, and so I guess maybe you'd have to make a distinction between like um, at, at what point um, does that become, uh, you know, I, I, I never like to say I, I won't read somebody's perspective. Maybe I won't, um, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't celebrate, uh, that person, but I think that really like boils down to like this whole conversation that we're having within culture right now about how do you separate people's ideas and what happens when you have somebody who has incredible ideas in one aspect of culture, society, religion, politics, but has maybe some less than ideal ideas in other aspects, you know? Uh, I mean, there's many people who challenged my support of Joe Biden because the guy has a terrible track record in a lot of mm. fucking areas, you know? Yeah. Uh, Hillary Clinton, you know? I mean, both of these people were not very friendly to the queer community until the last... 10, 20 years. Um, yeah. not very friendly to the, you know, to communities of color and indigenous people. Uh, and, you know, so, and yet, you know, we have situations where we support them in opposition to people like Donald Trump. And, you know, there's, I don't know, there's just nuance, I think there. Um, but I also want to be clear that I don't think nuance should ever be uh, used as a way to sweep conversations about people's positions under the rug because I do think it is important. Yeah, and sense. I will say I have a couple of thoughts um, because I, I, I'm going to bring up another book that we haven't talked about, and that is A Church Called Tove which is by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, Scott McKnight's daughter. And the reason I bring it up is because a lot of people gave it as a salute, like after reading Jesus and John Wayne, you might get frustrated with the patriarchy and then Christian nationalism. And so read this book, A Church Called Tove, and it'll make you feel better. And I started reading it and Scott McKnight, he was a college professor of mine. He's fiercely egalitarian and has has really pushed for women, you know, women's rights, women's liberation and and that kind of thing. And in the book, they write about caring for folks that are marginalized in the church. And they even there was a section where they listed out like, you know, oh, you know, people that are single or people, you know, and and communities of color and in all of these different categories of people and just said nothing about the queer community to the extent where I, um, reached out to say, Hey, like, is there something like it was, how come you left this out? Was it intentional? Was it something that, you know, and I did, didn't hear back and I understand there's, you know, publishers and university <laughs> seminaries that you work at and things like that. But 
I will say in that situation, I, I stopped reading the book because I was like, I, can't, I feel like you can't say that you're addressing the harm in the church without addressing the harm towards the queer community. And so I, I kind of wonder if it has to do with the topic that is being addressed in, in a book because it's like, okay, if we're going to address it, but totally be blinded to one entire aspect of this issue that's related to this then I, I just don't think it's going to be something that I want that I'm going to spend a lot of time investing in. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I think, I think that there's something too, that we talk about in this, in this interview, we're going to have, you know, today with Joe Lumen where she talks about, and I, I talked about this in, in our intro for last week's episode as well, that the difference between morality and ethics, and I won't like, you know, uh, get into it because she says it better than I she ever could. She describes it but, so well. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think that there, that, that conversation is applicable to this as well, because like for me, from my perspective, as somebody who's not a Christian, who's not a believer, uh, who still loves to read theology, who still loves to engage in, in conversations around faith, um, you know, I mean, there's lots of things that I'm going to to have disagreements about um, how you may may uh, you know construct your morals. Um, but if we could if we could pivot the conversation to say to 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 talk about ethics, maybe you know we could change the the way in which the conversation is happening but i do i do feel like it's difficult you you have like you said publishers and denominations and you have power dynamics um that exist uh i think about do you remember when eugene peterson right mm -hmm. near the end of his life did an interview with jonathan merritt for rns and said, yeah, I don't know why I wouldn't marry a lesbian couple. And then No, I did not hear about this. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's you you can look up Jonathan Merritt reported on it and had done the interview and basically, you know, um, you know, summarized Eugene Peterson's answer in the interview. And it was pretty goddamn affirming. Yeah. Uh and people lost their minds. You know, Lifeway stores said they're going to stop selling his books. Like uh, you the know, message. I mean, his the, book is yeah. the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they done. said we're we're no longer going to carry the message. We're no longer going to carry his memoir. We're no longer, which is like letters from a pastor or something, mm -hmm. was like a pretty popular memoir he wrote. Um, and yeah, I mean, they were like, we're going to financially decimate you and your and your family. Um, who I assume stepped in relatively quickly and made him post a retraction. And so he yeah. pretty quickly stepped back and said, oh, that's not what I said. That was taken out of context. I affirm, you know, a biblical sexual ethic, blah, 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 blah. But I'm almost certain it was, if it even was him uh, and not, you know, his family and other people who basically were, you know, uh, stood to lose a lot from him being totally stripped of his Christian, you know, kind of, uh, success. Uh, I, 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 I mean, that adds another layer of 
dynamic. But then there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but fuck you and your power and your dynamic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so it's and like, if that I power could be used. I mean, there's talk about Beth Moore because she's come out and, and talked about the SBC mm-hmm. and been really critical about their response to critical race theory. And so people are kind of waiting, like, will she come out and say something affirming? Probably not because she's kind of the poster girl of life. Way. <laughs> but yeah. And, but I will say this. Um, I do think there are instances where books can cause more harm in that in that context because they're non-affirming, right? And so in the case of Church Called Tove, think about people, pastors, church communities that are reading that book thinking, hey, we can take this and we can really reinvigorate what's happening in church and we can really do a lot of healing work. And they're still perpetuating these non-affirming, very harmful stances that are killing people. And, and I really, I, I always say, I don't shut up about this because it's happening. And so I just, I don't know. At, at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I, I'm okay missing out on something that those books have to say and reading things that are going to add value and, and not cause harm. Um, whether they're harming me personally, maybe not, but I think they are perpetuating harm in some ways. And so it might be a case by case basis, but mostly I try to read affirming authors. Yeah. I think, I I think that there's also another element that's interesting and that's worth bringing up too, is that even within the LGBTQ community, there is, there is still, you know, there, there are still queer folks who perpetuate by erasure. There's still queer folks Mm. who perpetuate, transphobia yeah you know even within you know you can have a a a gay male public figure author writer speaker etc who's perpetuating transphobic ideas that's happened and happens um and so again it's 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 a difficult and nuanced um approach as the listener to go okay well um, this person obviously has this thing to say and is speaking from this marginalized position, but is also not seeing these other marginalized positions. Um, and yeah. when you're dealing with intersecting identities and multiple intersecting identities, it gets complicated. And I don't think that there's any world where a clear rule is functional. Um, but in general, I, I just feel like there's a posture in a position that we can hopefully encourage people to take to go like we want to be considering these other voices, um, voices of dissent, even if we are holding them in the same hand or in, you know, the other hand, as we also hear from somebody who's coming from a different perspective. Um I don't know. It's complicated. I don't know where I land exactly. Yeah. And I'll say one last thing. I want to say that it is possible that some of those folks that are a little quieter that don't respond to my DMs and say, I have a statement or not, they they also could be trying to work towards change from within. I'm not going to discount that possibility. I think it's tough. I think it's seemingly impossible, but it's possible. There is a little chance there that that's happening. So I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to promote backing people into corners when that's a possibility too. 
Yeah, I think that, and I think that this exactly what you just said leads great into the conversation we have with Joe. And I'm, I'm really excited for people to hear. Um, if you have skipped all of our jabbering here at the beginning of the show, and you're just jumping here to uh, this point, uh, this interview, I think is important. I think everything that Joe says is important. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with this this exact topic that we're talking about here. Um, and I would sit back, shut up, and listen to Joe in almost all of these types of conversations because I think that she has just far superior perspective um, to me uh, when it comes to a lot of these these topics. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to, to share it with everybody. Let's get into it. Let's jump in. All right. Welcome to the Thereafter podcast. I'm Megan Crozier. I've got Cortland Coffee here, and we Hello. have Joe Lumen here today with us, and we're really excited to talk to Joe. Joe, um, some of us are familiar with your work um, online and your Patreon and on um, Twitter and other places, and I'm just curious if you would give us a little bit of history of how you got started, maybe where you were before and how um, things shifted for you. Yeah. Um, so thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to both of you. And I am I'm a Colombian-born pastor. I'm still a pastor. Um, that's just my profession, right? Um, but I call myself a reluctant pastor <laughs> uh, because this idea of a pastor is just so convoluted with a lot of abuse and harm. Um, but I you know, I care about people. I love people. And I love helping people navigate their own spirituality. So that's why I still call myself a pastor. Um, but I worked inside of evangelical churches after I moved to the U.S. to get my master's degree and to be an intern inside of a church. I um, worked inside of evangelical churches for about 10 years, a little bit over. Uh, most of that time was unpaid. And when I was paid, I was getting $700 a month. And I was told to be so very grateful that I was a woman getting even money, even though I have a master's degree. Um, and so there was just a lot of abuse, a lot of religious abuse, a lot of spiritual abuse. And inside of the church, I kept being told that it wasn't abuse. So it's really hard when you're inside of all of these spaces to actually navigate why you are so uncomfortable and why you are dealing with perhaps depression and anxiety and all of these things, because you cannot even see it inside of it. So it wasn't until I chose to leave, which was really hard. It was hard work to leave because it meant I was losing not only my career completely, like I, no career was gone. I was also losing all of our community. Like my husband and I were both pastors inside of the church. So we were both losing our careers and we were losing all of the community that we knew because we were in San Diego exclusively to play at this church. So all the people we knew were from the church. And so, but we decided to do it. We had to for our well-being and the well-being of our children. And I started to be to give myself permission to ask all the questions that I couldn't ask inside of the church. And I started learning about trauma and I started learning about narcissistic personality disorder, which I am I contend still to this day that a lot of evangelical abusive pastors are uh, would be diagnosed as narcissistic with narcissistic yes. personality disorder because the system just lends itself for that really well. Uh, so I started learning about all of these things and I started learning about my own trauma and how Christianity had become just really a coping mechanism for me 
uh, it was just this maladaptive coping mechanism that was acceptable because it's a Christian. You're a Christian, so it's fine. But I wasn't really healing. I wasn't really becoming uh, a more whole person. I wasn't really becoming the most authentic version of myself. I was just fitting into acceptable boxes. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to be... I wanted to be whole. I wanted to be healed. I wanted to heal. I wanted to address my traumas. I wanted to be a good mom. Uh, I wanted to be a good partner to my to my husband. And so I started doing that work and started learning a lot. And I started learning a lot about spirituality, not just Christianity, but uh, all these other different spiritualities. And Christianity, I still consider myself a Christian, even though I don't believe in God as a being. But a lot of Christian narratives continue to be so incredibly wholesome and healing and good for me that I refuse to let them go because people tell me that I don't get to be a Christian if I don't believe in God or if I don't believe in the virgin birth or if I don't believe in um, that Jesus was divine. Like, I believe Jesus was divine. Like, we are all divine, but I don't believe that Jesus was a deity. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. believe back from the dead. I don't believe in pretty much any of the things that Christian believing, but I do believe in a lot of beautiful narratives that come from Christianity and mostly from Judaism and studying Judaism and studying all of these different narratives actually radicalized me and made me these, like, I'm a full on anarchist. I, <laughs> I have very strong uh, political views and they all come from my studying of Judaism and my studying of Christianity. So I don't want to let it go, but yeah, yeah that's kind of like, a, a little bit of a mix of everything in me. That's cool. That's cool to to, to hear you say because I think I relate because I'll talk to people about my beliefs, um, especially like more progressive Christians, and oftentimes they'll be like, "Oh, you're you're a Christian," and I'm like, mm, "I, you know, <laughs> that's not not the word I would use, but but right? yeah, sure, I'll, that's cool." Uh, you know, because I I do as well. Still have a lot of value for a lot of the narratives. Yeah. Um, that I grew up with to explain spirituality. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I hear you talking about being in this, you know, uh, environment, this church plan environment. And one of the things that is an experience that I've had, I'm kind of curious. I, I don't know that I've ever heard you talk about before, but were there situations when you were in that environment where people maybe before you or ahead of you giving yourself permission to ask these questions, you interacted with people who were either leaving or asking these questions and you had arguments kind of against or like to like, kind of like, like, it seems like what you were saying was like, you were so into this environment. There were things that you believed that kept you within these abusive systems. Yeah. So did you have situations of kind of arguing for the system that you then had to unpack later on once you were like oh man i was maybe somewhat participating in that because i because i believed it because that was the system i was in yeah uh well thank you for bringing up how i sucked inside of the church too thank you that's very nice of you whatever um but i only bring it up because that was me and i'm curious how you have dealt with that if you've had that experience yeah i did you know um there was one particular i'm gonna tell you the story This this is one particular person that um they were very, very close to the pastors, just like I was. And they were involved in this church plan. We moved from Las Vegas together. We were friends and she uh, started dating someone and she she wanted to leave the church for a long time. But at some point she started dating someone and this person was not approved by the pastors. And so they told her she needed to go. 
And she did, they didn't tell her that they were like, you need to stop dating him. And she was like, no, I'm leaving then. And she left. But this is the way that the church functions in a lot of places. When somebody leaves, they tell you the narrative. The pastors will tell like the people in power will tell you the narrative. And then they will tell you, like, don't talk to them. You need to give them space. They need to deal with their sin. And so I never actually talked to her. I just believe the narrative that was told to me about her, which now looking back, she didn't do anything wrong. She was just like, I want, I like this person, whatever, leave me alone. Uh, and I want to leave the church. And I remember having so much judgment for her. Like, I can't believe she betrayed us. I can't believe she left. We were supposed to move here and start this church together. And she decided to leave us for someone that is not supposed to be hers as though pastors know better who you should be with in a relationship than anybody else, you know, but I participated in that. And when I started asking my own questions, I contacted her and I apologized. I was like, I'm so sorry. I should have contacted you. I should have let you tell me the story. I should have been a good friend to you. And I was an asshole. I, I, I wasn't a good friend to you. I just let you leave, let you be without any community. And I wasn't there for you. And we were friends. We were supposed to be friends. And instead I was, you know, I just took the narrative that was told to me and I never came to you. And I, we're friends still. And um, she doesn't live here in San Diego anymore. She's a little further north, but we get to see each other sometimes. And, you know, like I love her husband. I love their kids. They We have a good relationship. We talk. She's much more Christian than me. And we're fine with that. We're like cool with it. Um and yeah, but I did it, you know, I did it too. And I participated in the system. Like I was the, when the pastors didn't want to deal with something, they would send people to me and I would talk mm -hmm. to them because I was less threatening than the lead pastor, you know, and I'd be like, well, we submit to the pastor because the Bible says that we submit to the pastor. So I participated in the whole thing. I was a full on pastor inside of an evangelical church, indoctrinating people, teaching people things that were harmful because I believe them, even though I was so uncomfortable with them. Uh, yeah. I was so uncomfortable with them, but I was like, but this is the right thing. So the whole time gaslighting myself, the whole time uh, lying to myself, the whole time betraying myself. That's what I call it. I betrayed myself all the time inside of the church. I, I told people they couldn't live together. You know, if they wanted to be leaders inside of these things, they couldn't live together. They had to get married. And we pushed, it was two particular couples. We pushed them to get married before they were ready. And I regret all of those things. And I've apologized to people for all of these things. I've apologized profusely. Um, but yeah, of course, I participated in the whole thing. I was, I was everything that I fight against. Mm. And I'm yeah. being indoctrinated without having all the power to change because I was never the lead pastor. I was never, you know, I didn't have the power to change anything. And so we would have these staff meetings where I would be like, I don't understand why we're making such a big deal about this. And then when the staff meeting ended, the pastor would clearly say, I know that you don't agree, but unity means that you pretend that you agree with me in public, even if in private, you wow. don't. In public, you, we look like a united front. So I would be like, well, you know, we submit to the pastor, but I never stood up for people more. And I should have, not until I, I left, then I started standing up for people more. But inside of the system, I, I didn't. And I, I wish I would have been safe enough to do it. But I, I hold no judgment for me back then. You know, I was a traumatized person that was being manipulated and abused. Um, and at the same time, I was an abuser, both and, both. Thank you for sharing all that. And also that piece about not judging yourself for your past self, um, because I think that resonates with a lot of folks that listen in on, on here. And I'm curious when you talk about your shift and you say you were learning about trauma and you were learning about narcissism and, and abuse, was it 
a gradual shift or was there just kind of one day where it all came together and you just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I know your experience is likely different for me. I was watching at home during the pandemic online. I was not working for a church. And so I'm I'm sure your experience also is a lot different just because it was part of your income and part of your livelihood, a little part of your income. (laughs) Well, mine, but my husband was getting paid too. And we both, Mm, yeah. Like we, we ended up with zero income, none, and also no career. Like nobody was going to vouch for us. There was no, like our entire resume was gone. If they called any of our past job places, they'd be like, oh, no, like do not, do not work with them. So it was really bad. We became Uber drivers. It was really fun. <laughs> but but yep, yeah, I was an Uber driver post ministry as well. So yeah, the, you know, the ex-pastor to Uber driver pipeline, that's, that's a real <laughs> I know. thing. We were maintaining Uber here, like churches, obviously churches are maintaining Uber. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely gradual. Um, it was, it was very gradual. I was meeting myself with a lot of, um, I was moving us as slow as I could, you know, like I, I wasn't shocking my nervous system. And and that I don't think that we talk about that enough. We want people to move really quickly from abusive theology, from harmful theology that has been their entire reality for always really quickly to affirming good. And if you're not all the way there, then you're problematic. And it's like, well, you're literally asking them to shock their nervous system and to go into fight flight all the time. And that's harmful. You, we have to make room for them to s- slowly move and have conversations and, uh, and be able to question themselves and be safe in those questions, even if they've not completely moved toward the entirety of, you know, like being affirming and being not uh, colonizers, basically. Um, so it was very gradual. It was slow. There there were a few things that happened that kind of accelerated um, some things. So we were looking for jobs and every interview was like, oh, my God, I would hate working here. Like I would genuinely hurt work. Like I hate I, I don't want to do this anymore. So those things were accelerating a little bit of like, then what do I want to do? And then I went to Turkey, the country. And I don't know what other option is there. Like, why did I have to explain it was? <laughs> um, so I went to Turkey and I spent a lot of time there meeting a lot of Muslim people and sitting down with Muslim people and sitting down with Christians too and sitting with um, Syrian refugees that were Muslims too. My kids were playing with Syrian refugee children and talking to these moms and um they were washing their, like, there was this place where they washed their clothes and we would go there and help. And realizing that their faith was keeping them alive, like their Muslim faith was keeping them. And it was beautiful and it was deep. And I was learning so much from them. And at the same time, here in the U.S., my church was calling me, you know, satanic. And they were calling me uh, all of the possible names, like a heretic and all of these things. And, 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 you know, those things accelerated everything. Cause I was like, I don't want to participate in any of that. I don't want to be the kind of person that holds so much judgment. I don't. And I started, then I started learning about what supremacy culture means. Uh, Cause I knew what white supremacy is, but I didn't know what supremacy culture as a whole means and how we've all internalized supremacy culture. So uh, at the time, there is this book called Me and White Supremacy, but Leila Saad, before the book even, she wrote it, before the book even existed, Layla Saad had a, uh, it was an Instagram kind of challenge. And she yes. was, he was writing questions 
on her Instagram challenge about white supremacy, and then people would answer those questions. And so I was I was participating in all of that and realizing how much supremacy culture I had internalized, how much supremacy culture was inside of me, how I believed that I was better in many ways, not just because I was a Christian, because that we internalize, all Christians in evangelicalism internalize this idea that we're better because we're Christians. That's supremacy culture. But there were so many other things that I had internalized too. You know, I, I grew up in a family that didn't, we weren't poor. We weren't super rich either, but we weren't poor. We didn't have needs. We traveled. Uh, I went to private school. And I internalized that I was better. I internalized elitism. I internalized uh, classism. I internalized all of this like, fat phobia. Um, and I started realizing like, wow, I I need to heal. Like I, need, I dehumanize people in so many different ways. So going through that, uh, those prompts and learning so much more about oppression, um, I, I, I read the pe pedagogy, I cannot say that word, so whatever, the pedagogy of oppression and realizing like, I, I am my own oppressor. Like oppression has worked so well that it turned me into my own oppressor. And in turn, I oppress others, including my children. Uh, and I didn't mm. want to be that kind of mom. I didn't want to be an oppressive mom that is just training my children to participate in systems of oppression well and, and, and fit into the mold that, that oppression determines that they need to fit into. And so those things accelerated my, my deconstruction because it was no longer, I'm no longer deconstructing Christianity at this point. I was deconstructing everything. I was deconstructing my existence. I was like, is it even a point to exist? Like, what the hell? Like, this is not everything that I've believed, not just about divinity, but everything that I've believed about society society now mm. was up to question. Um, and then when, when you're talking about systems of oppression and you're talking about the justice system and you're talking about patriarchy, then the problems with Christianity are just but a smidge of the bigger problems with society. Christianity just happens to be an excellent weapon to continue to sustain systems of oppression. But the problem is much, much bigger. And it, it's not good enough to just walk away from toxic uh, Christian spaces. Now we have to talk about how I could completely be an atheist, full on, leave all that religion is, and continue to be an oppressor and continue to oppress others and continue to oppress myself. And so what I wanted was to be the most whole, healed version of myself. And that happened to be in alignment with a lot of Christian narratives that I was studying at the time from the prophets. And so I kept being pulled by Christianity and pushed away from it. And I was, I was dancing with all of these things. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. I went on a rant. No, that's fantastic. I'll let Megan say if it answered, but yeah. No, that, yeah, that I agree. Uh, I, I, I love the way that you talk about the, this, uh, you know, kind of like dichotomy or this like paradox in between being pushed and pulled away from these things. Um, and I think that that is a really relatable experience that a lot of people have because, you know, for me, at least there's so many things I think back to, and, uh, I think about how in, in general Christianity at the surface level was telling me, you got to get outside your comfort zone. You got to get uncomfortable. You have to put yourself last or you have to, you know, you have to like put others first or whatever. Um, but then like. I, you know, as I started deconstructing or making my way out of it, there, there was so much about that teaching that I was like, oh, this teaching is why we should love and affirm and care for LGBTQ people. Like this, this right. teaching is like why we should, you know, like there was so much, so it was like, I couldn't throw it all out. And I have had the experience of 
seeing people move to atheistic worldviews and still maintain just as much problematic ideology because you know like you said it's baked in can you can you talk a little bit more about that idea i've heard you use the phrase like it's the water that we're swimming in yeah um or it's the air that surrounds us you know it's like there there is this you know supremacy culture and colonization and these ideas um give us some examples of how those things are just realities around us that we're not able to just be like, I'm not a Christian anymore, so I'm not participating. Right. Yeah. So Christianity that we have today in the West is is an extension of a lot of supremacy cultures. And what I mean by that is that the Christianity that we inherited over here in the West, the Christianity that was shoved down the throat of indigenous people and and by indigenous people, I should also clarify that I also mean European indigenous people that were colonized by Christianity. You know, like that that includes indigenous people too. But I'm talking about, you know, mostly the West. But um, so all of these was just Christianity was being used as a weapon to push this supremacy culture, to push the ideology that European ideas are better, that European men particularly are smarter, that we should trust them to be able to uh, lead our societies, that the way in which they understand society is better, is uh, smarter, is the right way. Um, so supremacy culture is exactly that. This idea that there is one ideal, that there is one norm, and that we should all follow that norm and that we should all fit into that norm the best that we can. And that includes not only skin color, obviously, like the biggest, like most obvious expression of supremacy culture is white supremacy, which tells us that white ways of being, white people are better than. And that didn't start with just the skin color. It started with the ways that the Europeans were living their lives. And this belief that the way that they led their lives, that their understanding of society, their understanding of relationships, their understanding of justice, um, that all of those things were the right ways of understanding all of these different concepts. And so they moved into all of these new spaces in the world and they say, well, you don't understand justice. You don't understand marriage. You don't understand relationships. Therefore, I'm not going to meet you with curiosity and be like, how do you live your life? But instead, I'm going to tell you that you have to let go of everything that you are, everything that you've experienced, everything that you, uh, the, the ways in which you exist in the world. And you need to start existing in the world how I tell you to exist. And that is the water we've been swimming in, in the West. Uh, Let's talk about just America, the whole entire continent. America, that's what we've been living in America for the last 500 years. My way is the right way. And the way, the right way is white, wealthy, cis, hetero men. They are right. And then we have this hierarchy of acceptability that was created. And in the hierarchy, you have white people are at the top, white men higher than white women. Um, and now things have moved. So white gay men are higher sometimes than women of color, often than women of color. Uh, wealthy people are higher. Skinnier people are higher. Uh, educated people that are traditionally educated. And by traditionally, I mean, you know, that went to academia. Uh, that is better. It's higher. 
adults are smarter than children. Uh, so we have this entire hierarchy of acceptability that we were born into. And all of us have internalized these messages because those are the messages that are in the media, in books, in movies. Uh, our parents are sharing those messages with us, not consciously. These are all implicit biases. These are all subconscious ideas that we have been sweeping in, that we've been watching. And so there is no questioning of the status quo because this is just the way that the world is. You know, monogamy is another status quo, like monogamy is the norm. Everything, anything outside of monogamy is perverse and wrong and disgusting and um, anything outside of heterosexual monogamy, moreover. And so the, the moving away from these supremacist culture, these supremacist ideologies, that there is this one way of existing that is the right way of existing, requires for us to question the hierarchy of acceptability and requires for us to not only question the hierarchy, but also start intentionally tearing down the hierarchy, which requires for us to learn from people that have been in the lower tiers of the hierarchy. What is your experience? Why do you do things this way? Why is it that, you know, like, how is your existence here? Uh, and what does that look like? What does it mean? Um, so that's what I mean. All of us have been conditioned to believe certain things about different things. And it goes down to education. Education is built on all of these things, uh, our education system, right? Because we are just asking all children, neurodivergent children or not, we're asking all children to consume a whole bunch of information and be able to regurgitate it back. It doesn't matter whether they are made better or worse by these. We just want them all to fit into a, a mold. We want them all to fit, to be the same. Uh, mm. And our justice system is the same way. Our justice system is deeply supremacist. And the idea that is the punitive justice system, like just the idea of having a punitive justice system is this idea that some people should be punished for some of what they do, even though we're all criminals. Every single one of us is a criminal. We've all committed crimes, but only those at the bottom of the hierarchy are held accountable for it. So we have this punitive justice system that doesn't talk about why do people commit the crimes that they commit. They, it just talks about like, if you're at the bottom and you're not fitting into our standards, we will punish you to demand that you could fitting into our standards. Um, so, you know, everything. We, we start then questioning everything. Our healthcare system is the same way because um, uh, healthy is defined in very particular, specific ways, right? And so, so yeah, that's, that's what we're swimming in. And then we start yeah. questioning and we have to now start meeting people with curiosity because I no longer can come to you knowing my biases and say like, oh, well, Cortland or Megan are just white people and therefore all of these things. But instead, I have to meet you with curiosity and be like, I want to know who you are, aside from all of this, uh, outside from all of these labels that have been given to you, you know, outside from all of these ways in which you've been conditioned to exist in the world because of those labels. I need to meet you and I need to ask you who you are and I need to lead with curiosity. Um, and then I start dismantling this this uh, supremacy culture that I've internalized. And that is the most important, like the people that have to do that job the most are the people that have the most privilege because you've been conditioned to believe that you are the norm. Therefore, understanding that other people are normal too requires for you to meet others with curiosity because you've never experienced, in, in some aspects, you've never experienced what it means to not be the norm, to not be the standard, to not be the, like, you're fine. Your existence yeah. alone is fine. So dismantling supremacy culture is meeting people and being like, I want to be curious about all of you who've, who I've been told are not good, are not healthy, are not um, acceptable, you know, are not ideal. Yeah. 
is the, is there a way you know when when I interact with people who are you know kind of living in this headspace that you talk about, oftentimes you know I feel like the uh, the position is stated as like, well, I just believe in some type of absolute truth or, you know, it's, 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 uh, kind of cast in this very kind of like noble moral, uh, absolutism, yeah. um, that then is just cloaked, uh, over the top of these really kind of like harmful, dysfunctional ways of looking at the world. Right. Um, how are there ways to be able to have a conversation with someone coming from that perspective? You know, I think about people like my parents, uh, uh I've been identifying as uh, bisexual for last year. I'm my wife and I are non-monogamous. Uh, so a lot of the things that you talk about, I mean, we're, we are, uh, vile, evil, uh, uh, people <laughs> to them yeah. and their perspective is, it's just an absolute moral issue, right? A, a, right. An issue of absolute truth. Um, I liked what you said earlier about like, is this making people better people or is this, is this actually good or productive? How do right. you, how do you navigate conversations, getting people to change their thought process? Yeah. Um, or helping people to change their thought process from, yeah. from that one to the other. Yeah. Well, you can't, <laughs> you can't change. <laughs> Damn it. I thought that um, might, no. might be the answer. Shit. Yeah. You, right. can't, you can't. However, you can have conversations with them to invite them to be more curious. And I, I do have to say here that people that have been raised inside of very narrow ideologies have a different brain chemistry, by the way. Um, so it, it's it's a it's a brain problem. Like they have, I don't want to sound awful, but um, people that have been raised inside of very narrow ideologies have a smaller uh, frontal cortex. <laughs> so they have a harder time thinking through some of these things in a very rational way. It's not about rationale. It's about their, their uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight-flight response, is activated every time you say something that is outside of their uh, paradigm. And so when they're, when that system is activated, actually their entire prefrontal cortex is shut down. They are not thinking rationally anymore. And the moment that that happens, and you can tell when it happens, you can see when they've shut down completely, the best thing that you can do is be like, I'm going to take a walk. Let's be done with this conversation because you stopped listening to me. You are just trying to defend something that doesn't need defense. Like, it's fine. And so I've, I've learned to watch and be like, mm, this conversation is not productive anymore because your brain is not here anymore. You're done. Your, your nervous system got activated. And they're not being bad. This is a neurobiological response. It's not, you know, it's, it's not even a conscious response. It's a neurobiological response. So I recognize that. Uh, but so long as they are still engaging me, I am happy to have the conversation. And I draw the difference between ethical and moral behavior. Moral laws are laws that a group of people have agreed upon. So have Christians agreed upon certain things that are immoral? A lot of Christians have evangelical Christians agreed upon certain moral standards. Yes. Um, evangelical Christians have agreed that monogamy is a moral standard and that non-monogamy is immoral. They've agreed upon that. Does it mean that it's unethical? No, it doesn't. The, the conversation about ethical behavior is a conversation about harm. Is anybody being harmed when Corland and his wife or me and my husband say, hey, we want to have an open marriage that is an ethical, non-monogamous marriage where you and I are conversating with one another. Neither one of us is hurting one another. The people that we are engaging outside of our marriage are fully aware of what's happening here. 
nobody's being harmed, but I am able to express parts of my sexuality that I couldn't express inside of a monogamous relationship. Is it unethical to do that? No, it's not unethical. And for evangelical Christians, it's immoral. Both things can exist at the same time. That being said, are you able to continue to maintain your standard that this is immoral for you and respect the reality that it is not unethical for me? Can we meet there? Because I respect that it's immoral for you. I respect that totally. It's immoral for you. Thank goodness you're not doing it. It's me. So we're good. Can we meet mm. in this place where it is still immoral for you? I respect that, but it's not unethical for me. Therefore, I get to engage in it. Can we meet there? And if you cannot yeah. meet there, that means that you cannot meet me. And you're demanding that I become what you want me to become. Therefore, you do not love me. You love an idea that you have of me in your head. But if you want to love me, you love me as I am. And I am an ethical, non-monogamous person. Can you respect that? And so the conversation starts shifting because you are not asking them to change. You're asking them to respect you because you are leading with respect too. I respect you. I respect this is immoral for you. Please don't ever become non-monogamous if it's immoral for you. Like, don't do it. For me, it's ethical though because it would mm. be, I don't want to betray myself. You're demanding that I betray myself to make you comfortable. I cannot do that. And I would never ask you to do that. I would never ask you to do that. So can we meet there where we respect one another, even if we disagree? Can we meet there? And I do that with people that I love. With people that I don't love, I don't care. Uh, like, you know, if we don't have a relationship, I'm like, believe whatever you want of me. I don't, yeah. I generally don't care. But with people that I love, like my parents, like my, um, you know, like the close people to me, I, yeah. that's the invitation. Like, can we meet in the middle where you still think this is immoral? I respect that. That's why I would never ask you to do it. And... This is a conscious, ethical, very thought out, very respectful decision that we've made. Can you, can you, can you meet me there? Can you respect that? And so the conversation shifts because I'm not trying to change you. You're not trying to change me. We're just trying to love each other and we're just trying to respect one another, understanding that we're in different places. So, yeah. That's so good. I always learn so much when you talk, Joe. Um, I, I kind of want to go back a little bit to the... Um, you talked about you after you left your church and you were driving Uber for a while. And I want, I would love to hear a little bit more about your journey during that time and how you got from that to where you are today and just the evolution of that. Because I know there's so many people that are in this community of deconstructing and decolonizing and wanting to understand their identities that feel very isolated and have a lot of grief and a lot of healing that they're going through. And so I just um, would love to hear about what what were you engaging with at that time? What helped you? Yeah. What um, got you through that? And then how did you, you talked about being a pastor still. And so, but you have a new definition of being a pastor. And so I would love to hear kind of how that evolved a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I started doing a lot of, one of the things that I talk a lot about is journaling. So I started journaling a lot. And some of the things that were leading my journaling were, what do I want like really, really, what do I want? And I didn't want to bullshit myself anymore, you know, because I've been bullshitting myself my whole life. Like, oh, what I want is to be married. Bullshit. I did not. I was told that's what I wanted, but I did not. What I want is to be a mom. Bullshit. I did not. I did not want to be a mom. I was told that's what I wanted and I wanted to fit in because I wanted acceptance. I wanted my parents to accept me. I wanted my community to accept me. And so I started deconstructing all of that and sitting down with myself and being like, okay, so I would meet, I would wake up early 
So all of these things are things I learned inside of Christianity, right? Wake up early, read the Bible. I wasn't reading the Bible at the time, but uh, wake up early, have like a quiet time with God. I didn't believe in God anymore, but I wanted to have a quiet time with me because I believe that divinity is in me now. Um, that's what I believe about divinity. I believe a lot of things about divinity, but I said, okay, I'm going to keep doing that, but I'm going to meet with me and I'm going to start calling myself, like calling bullshit on myself. Uh, I needed to meet this woman that had been buried under the mm. expectations of society. And I didn't know her. I lived with her and I didn't know her. And I wanted to meet her. I was like, I'm going to like, I'm going to use my own hands and get all of the dirt that has been thrown over you. And I'm going to unearth you. And we're going to meet one another. And we're going to have a talk. And we're going to figure out what the fuck is it that we want. Can I curse? Because I just did a lot. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. Absolutely. I curse a lot. So uh, I was like, we're going to meet you. We're gonna, I'm going to find out who you are and we're going to figure it out. So I would wake up. I still do this. I would wake up and we would meet and be like, okay, what is it? Like, what is it that you want? Oh, um, I still want to be a pastor. Do you though? Or are you doing that? Because you know, that gives you acceptability and it gives your parents that ability to be able to brag about you. And you like that they brag about you. Is it about the bragging rights that they give, that it gives them? Therefore it gives acceptability to the inner child that you have that is wounded. Yes, Joe, that's why you want to be a pastor. Let's stop pretending that a thing is not a thing. So I started calling calling bullshit on myself, and 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 then a lot of trauma started coming up. You know, a lot of the ways in which I behave in the world, and how those are responses to trauma. So I didn't want to keep responding to my trauma unless it was the safest for me. Um, but I didn't want to keep responding to my trauma. But I wanted to respond to my true self. Like, is this really, really what I want, or is this my conditioning? Is this because I've been conditioned to believe this is what I want? Uh, you know, I, I always wanted to live in a city and be like a city family that was all cute. I don't want that anymore because I realized that's not what I really want. I want a peaceful, quiet. I want to paint. I want to live in this peaceful, quiet place and I want to paint and I want to be in front of a lake and I want it to be cold. And, you know, like I don't want to participate. People are like, if you don't want to work, then you're lazy. I don't want to work. And it's not because I'm not, I'm lazy. It's because work has turned into something that is really ugly, that is killing our souls. I want to do things that I'm passionate about, like helping people, showing up for my community. And so I started kind of learning what is it that I want, even if I sound lazy, even if I sound selfish. Even if I sound wrong, I wanted to have an open marriage and I did, you know, and I was like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And do I get to say it? Uh, you know, and he said, because, and I had to ask myself, is it because I believe that the attention of other people gives me some sort of validation? Like I like to be validated because I'm pretty, like I want people to say that I'm pretty, or is it because I really want to continue to explore my sexuality in different ways? But I, I ask all of those questions of myself. Like I call bullshit on myself a lot um, to be able to get to the absolute core of who I am, like the absolute core of what I want. Um, because inside of Christianity, we've all, and inside of this supremacist culture in general, we've all been so conditioned to give the right answer, right? To, to look the right way. I didn't care to look the right way anymore. I tell people all the time, I'm not a good person. Like, don't put that expectation on me. I'm not a good person. Um, and by the way, neither are you. We are neither good nor bad. We're complex people. And I'm comfortable not being a good person. I'm comfortable not being a bad person. I'm comfortable being a complex person that has the ability to cause harm and also do a lot of good. Um, and uh, it depends on who you ask. If you ask evangelical pastors, I'm the worst. Mm. I want them to know that. Like, I want them to believe I'm the worst. Because if evangelical pastors think I'm good, I'm fucking up somewhere. <laughs> 
So (laughs) I got very, very comfortable. I I continue to get very, very comfortable in my own skin. This is who I am. And I will not betray myself for the sake of somebody else. I will not. Now, I have to mention here, I have a shit ton of privilege to be able to even say those things, to be able to exist in that way. I have a lot of privilege. I have a partner that is supportive of me. I have parents that are supportive of me one way or another, even if they are super, super uncomfortable with some of the things that I do and say, they are still supportive. I have, you know, I, ha- I have this thing that I call a safety net that a lot of people mm-hmm. don't have. If you don't participate in certain things, then you're fucked. I don't have that. I have a safety net because at the end of the day, I can always call my mom and be like, hey, bail me out. We're like, bail me out. And she will. Um, I have I, I have a lot of time to be able to, not a lot, but I have some time to be able to read books, to be able to learn, to be able to meet with, you know, therapists. To be, able, I, I don't like therapy, but I like group therapy. Um, my mother-in-law paid for our therapy for a while. All of those are privileges that I have. So Within your context, you have to determine what is the safest way for me to explore the most authentic version of who I am without putting myself in danger, without um, activating my nervous system every 30 seconds. Because when you activate your nervous system all the time, you're literally killing yourself. Your body's dying slowly. You're harming your body. Um, So what is the safest way for me to continue to explore? And for parts of my journey, the safest way was journaling. And nobody was reading those journals. Nobody was seeing those journals. Not even my partner. I was like, if he reads these he will hate me. Like he will, you know, I was so afraid that I was not going to be accepted. Um, and it took time for me to get more comfortable with myself and realize, well, if he hates me, he hates me and it's going to be okay. But it took a minute. It wasn't quick. It wasn't, you know, for two years after I left the church, I did nothing. I just sat down with myself depressed and sad and journaled and I would drive people on Uber and hope that they would not talk to me. And my husband loves when they talk to him, but I don't. (laughs) <laughs> um, and you know, I, I was just lonely. Like I spent a lot of time with myself and I think that too many times, and if that's what you are doing, like if that's your journey, that's fine. I'm saying sometimes it's not super healthy that people start deconstructing and then start talking so publicly, um, mm. because they have never gotten the time to sit with themselves. Like mm-hmm. there is, there is, there is this very healthy wholesome good thing in silence and in quietness and in loneliness like it's good it's good to to carve out some time where you don't have to perform you know you don't have to start an account and perform and be like look i am now like sure i'm not a christian doing ministry but now i am somebody that left christianity doing ministry in this other way like you don't have to we don't have to perform for anybody we don't have to do shit we yeah. just have to exist and so i I, I gave myself permission to do that for two years but go ahead Corland. Oh, I was just going to say that external validation that you talked about earlier is how I was taught to process what I want. So I think it's really common for people to move from one external validator because we're not told, I wasn't told that we had the process of internal validation yeah. um, at all. Right. <laughs> that, that wasn't even an option. Exactly. Because it's like my worth is so tied to everything outside of me that I continue to do that even outside of the toxic space. And, and I didn't. I wanted to belong to myself so deeply. I wanted to belong to myself so much that regardless of what's taken away from me, regardless of what is around me, regardless of who I am, what I do or what I bring into the world, I deeply belong to myself. Deeply. And even if I don't do anything ever again, even if I don't help one another, another soul in my the rest of my life, I deeply 
deeply belong to myself. I needed to belong to myself first because if I don't belong to myself, then every single thing that I do is to belong to somebody else. And in that, I will always lose myself, always. Because I'll sell myself for the purpose of others telling me you belong. I didn't. Mm. I needed to belong to myself completely and fully. And so I went on that journey. Like, what does it look like to belong to myself? What does it look like to not need? And that doesn't mean I don't need people and community. We all need people and community. But what I don't need is external validation. What I don't need is for others to be like, yeah, that's that's good. Like, you can do that. Or you're valuable because you speak about these things. Or you're valuable because you wrote a book. Or you're valuable because you have a podcast. Or I'm valuable because I am. Yeah. Everything else is extra. Like, it's just yeah. extra. And it has to come yeah. from deep, deep desire. Like, everything is extra that I bring because I want to. Not because I have to, not because I need to for survival. I just want to. I do the things that I do because I want to. That's beautiful. Um, and I also love the concept of calling bullshit on yourself. <laughs> that, that I feel like that resonated with me too. Um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about um, how you respond to the way people respond to you, right? So uh, we're seeing a lot, you know, you're on Twitter, you're pretty vocal, you are not afraid to call somebody out if, um, if they're doing something that's harmful, if they're spreading things that are harmful. We see a lot of hot takes on what deconstruction is within evangelicalism or what it should be or or all of that. And so I, I, I wish you could see the look on our faces. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, this so, is a week yeah. to talk about it too, man. It's been, uh, it's been a good week for that. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about just like what you choose to engage in and, and just what your why is when you're doing that and, and yeah. kind of how you, cause I, I know that you're pretty intentional about what you say and what you do and, and how you care for yourself, but how you also speak out to help others too. Yeah. So for the most part, I like the, the, the big thing is power, right? Power dynamics that I think about all the time. And I have uh, privileges that I like to use uh, for the purpose of dismantling systems of oppression. So one of the privileges that I have is I'm an educated person. I'm a very educated person in regards to Christianity, in regards to Christian theology, in regards to Christian history. Therefore, I feel like it is a proper and appropriate for me to call out bullshit on the Christian takes that are just so harmful and abusive. Yeah. Um, now I do that understanding Christian, I'm uh, sorry, power dynamics too. So sometimes like I'll see really bad takes from someone that has a very small like account and I'm like, hmm. I, usually I just talk to them directly, you know, like usually it's just the first time. And for the most part, even with larger pastors, I first engage them one-on-one. -on -one. Like I go and I go, Hey, publicly, because they posted something publicly. So publicly I comment and I go like, Hey, what the hell is this? Um, and then they never respond to me or delete. And then I take it further. Um, but I do it always thinking about the marginalized people, the people that are abused inside of churches. So people ask me all the time, why do you waste, waste, they call it waste. Why do you waste so much time responding to people? And I'm like, oh, for the comments, for the people that are reading the comments exclusively. I don't do it for the pastor. I know for a fact they're not going to listen to me. I know mm. for a fact they don't give a rat's ass about what I have to say. In fact, they are going to be mad at me and like shut me down and completely, um, I'm, like I'm done. 
You know, they're not going to listen to me whatsoever. I know that. Mm. I know that for a fact. I don't write for them. I don't respond for them. I respond for the people that are being abused inside of the churches, uh, that are reading all of these comments, that don't feel safe enough to say anything quite yet, that don't feel safe enough even asking questions out loud to people in their lives quite yet. But reading the comments makes them feel validated and seen, and it makes them realize that they are not alone. And seeing that I'm like going back and forth and I'm like, you are not going to intimidate me. You will not intimidate because that's what they do. They use intimidation a lot. You're not going to intimidate. You cannot intimidate me. Um, Then I do it for them. And that's what I'm thinking all the time. Like, why do I engage? I engage for them. I engage for the person that I was seven years ago. I engaged for the person that I needed seven years ago. I needed to read those comments. I needed to have somebody be like, this is bullshit. Uh, because I couldn't. I was petrified to do it. I was I was not ready to do any of that. I was scared. I was indoctrinated. I was being abused. Um, but I needed somebody to say the things that I am willing to say now, that I feel safe enough to say now. So when people see me respond, they think that I'm responding so that I want to change these people's minds. They will not. I, we cannot change people's minds. I'm doing it for those who are already changing their mind and that mm. need to know that they are not alone, that they need to know that there are some of us. And once they leave, once they feel safer, we're going to be here. We're going to be here and they can start following and they can start talking to us. And I try to respond to most all of my DMs because I want them to know, like, I'm not doing this for clout. I'm not doing this for um, starting a new career. Like that was not the goal or the intention at all. I do it because I have all of these tools that I've acquired through all of these years. And I wanted to use those tools in the best possible way to be able to help people that are being oppressed, marginalized, harmed, abused. Um, and this is one of the ways in which I do it. So that's that's why I respond. And that's why, and I don't respond to everything, you know, like there are things that happen that I see that I'm like, ah, I don't want to participate in this conversation. It's just, uh, also sometimes I see like some other people have it, like they got it. It's good. Um, yeah. But, when I see like I could add something to the to the conversation and I could add, especially for women of color, like I want women of color to see themselves, you know, like mm. well, we don't get to be intimidated by white men. They cannot intimidate us anymore. Um, so I do it for them. I do it for my sisters. I um, and so that's why I engage for the most part. Not I don't care about changing their minds. They won't. It's OK. Yeah, I, I, I loved there was this beautiful post that you had addressing a comment, I think on TikTok, where somebody was trying to basically kind of uh, completely off track the conversation of what you were talking about. And they brought up like, you know, toxicity or problematic theology within Islam. And I remember you addressing and saying, in just this really nuanced and beautiful way that like, I'm 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 not going to get pulled into that because this is what I have to talk about. And I have plenty to talk about here. And I don't have to 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 it's it's almost like you don't have to 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 belong to this one identity of of uh truth um you can say i'm speaking for this and yes there's probably other fights to be had but this is the one that that i'm addressing and i think that that was something i grew up with our evangelical fight for truth was the one and only and absolute fight for truth and reality and watching that TikTok for me was really freeing. I was like, oh, okay, I can, I can, I can approach this in a more nuanced way. I, I really appreciated that. 
Yeah, because, you know, we, we are told that, like, we, you have to fight for everything. And it's really funny for me that because Christianity is um, a, a privileged identity in the West. Um, as a Christian, we are privileged in the West. Uh, even as people that, even if you're not a Christian anymore, but you grew up inside of Christian narratives, you are privileged in the West. So for, for people in the West that are privileged to be like, hey, talk about Islam, when Islamophobia is real, <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Muslim people got themselves. Like there are plenty of Muslim people that are holding their own accountable with a lot more expertise that I could ever bring into this conversation because I've never lived as a Muslim. Um, so I'm going to be stepping into a, a territory that isn't even for me to step into. Like I don't need to know all the things. I don't need to be an expert on all the things. I know what I know and I know the tools that I have and I know what tools I can bring into certain conversations. And then there are other conversations where my job is to sit down, shut up and listen. Um, you know, or just a bow out and be like, I'll bring you coffee. That's my job for this one. Um, so just, just knowing what are the tools that you have and what are the tools that can be used and you don't have to be useful in every single situation. Like we don't like, that's another narrative. That's, that's a narrative of capitalism that is also all seeped into Christianity, right? Like you have to be useful all the time. You have to be on all the time. You have to be doing something all the time. No, we don't. We don't. We absolutely mm. don't. We also, like, rest is very, very productive. Rest mm. is resistance against these systems that tell us that we are products that are just working all the time. No, I'm a human, and I get to just say, like, I don't want to participate in that fight. It's not worth my, it's not, it's not worth it for me. And also, I bring nothing to it, nothing. So I consider all of those things. And I also have four kids, so sometimes I just don't want to participate because I want to hang out with them. <laughs> As you should. That's wonderful. Yes, they are so fun. That's wonderful. Uh, I think I think we're we're close to probably around our time. Uh, I want to see if Megan has anything else. I could obviously we could talk to you for four yeah. hours. All of our guests, I'm always like, yeah, we could have <laughs> a five sure. hour interview, but that wouldn't be respectful of your time, and I'm sure our listeners wouldn't want to listen to a five hour episode. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think my question will kind of lead into closing us out because we do like to um, find out where people can find you. But also, I, I want you to talk a little bit about what you're doing now because I see you teaching courses. I see you, um, you've you've written um, for some collaborative projects. And so I, I would love to hear a little bit about what what you're doing in that. And then, um, I mean, you can also talk about where people can find you too. Yeah. Yeah, so I do. I, I teach a course called Christian Hegemony, and it's a course basically taking us through the history of how Christianity has seeped into every single possible aspect of Western society uh, and how our ideas of um, the, the way that we have society are very embedded into Christian theology, even if we think that they are secular now. Um, so, you know, ideas about marriage, ideas about parenting, ideas about justice, ideas about health, all of these things have been, have started with Christian hegemony and, and powerful Christians that were pushing all of these narratives on all of us. And we get to question them uh, and we get to have a different relationship with both spirituality and with ourselves and our communities. Like it gets to mean something different for all of us. Um, so I do that. We start like 
Second Temple Judaism all the way to today. So it's 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 pretty heavy and there is a lot there. But it's they are fun conversations to have about like how do we question these things and what are the roots of these things? So we talk about, you know, even virginity, like where did the idea of virginity come and does it matter now and what does it mean now? Um, so things like that. It's pretty cool. And then um yeah, I, I am online, continue to have conversations. I am writing a book also. That's um, I'm excited about the book. And it's basically the book is about the ways in which uh, we are groomed by theology to accept and tolerate abuse, uh, mm. not just inside of churches and in our relationships, but also in society, to accept and tolerate abuse from, from governments, to accept and tolerate abuse from our job places, um, and how we can change that. And we all get to show up in the world as the most authentic version of ourselves and not betray ourselves anymore. So yeah, but for the most part, I share everything online for free because I want people to have accessibility. Um, so this week I'm sharing about virginity, actually. So it's a very long conversation about virginity and about where it came from, why it matters and why it doesn't matter. Uh, so yeah, that's about it. Cool. So what are, what are those places that people can find you? What are the, what are the websites, Twitter, Instagram, handles, all that? We'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, but. I'm Joe Luman everywhere. So just like my whole name. Now, Luman is hard to spell, so it's better to just read it. Because uh, <laughs> I say Luman and people are like, how do you even write that? Um, so a gift of the patriarchy to me, uh, my husband's name. So yeah, it's Joe Luman <laughs> everywhere on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. And I am on Instagram. And I do have a Patreon. And I have different personalities in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I just show up differently in every single one of them because they are different platforms, you know? So you, you'll see the most feisty version of me probably on Twitter uh, and then a little bit more fun on TikTok and a little bit more serious and it's like educational on Instagram. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. I love it. Um, well, we really appreciate having this conversation with you, Joe. And just um, I, like I said, I always learn so much from from everything that you say. And I hope people will check out your work um, if they haven't already. And do you have any any other questions or thoughts, Cortland, before we wrap? No, like I said, I could go forever. But I, uh, I really appreciate the time uh, that you've given to us. I'm I'm really grateful, and hopefully, I, I think that this conversation will be helpful for for somebody who's listening who's in a place like you have been, like I have been, I mean, it was helpful for me uh, sitting here where I yeah. am now. So I really appreciate you, your voice. Um, and specifically, like even the comments that you've made about non-monogamy are really helpful. Like there's so little representation for those of us who are doing this in a ethical, healthy, beautiful way and trying to be open about it because I, I find people, uh, even in progressive or post-Christian circles who are still not very educated on that uh, as a thing. So yeah, really absolutely. appreciate you. Yeah, there is definitely not enough conversations about it. And it's tricky, right? Like I know there are spaces where I'm like, I'm not going to even mention it because you're going to freak out and I don't <laughs> have the energy. Like, <laughs> it's just, yeah. So yeah, I hear you. Well, thank you so much for having me anytime. I love talking to both of you and I love seeing all the things that you say and everything that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for creating spaces for people um, that need these spaces. There just are not enough of them. Awesome. Awesome. Until next time. Yes. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Yes. Yeah, that was Joe Lumen, Joe fucking Lumen on the Thereafter podcast, Megan. Man, yeah, she is amazing. I, man, I, I, like I said, I could listen to her talk for hours. 
Me too. Me too. And there's and there's so much that um there's just so many things that she says that makes me want to learn more and and listen more. Um and I think there is there's so many people that we're talking to on this podcast that I can see how much they've gleaned and learned from other people. And it's like everybody we talk to, they are learners, you know, like Joe's just like this, like she's just learned so much from so many different people. Um, and that really comes out in, in what she shares. Well, and it really showed me what I still have yet to learn. Cause I, I mean, even just in that interview, I had, I gained so much knowledge just from the things she shared. And I, I still have so much more learning and growing to do. And I, I, I love the grace with which she approaches people, but also just her knowledge and expertise in so many areas. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it oddly like humanizes, um, the people that she's interacting with. Cause, and it, she, she kind of says that she's like, there's certain people that you're just like, yeah, I, I mean, you're not fucking worth the time. Um, and I love that cause it's so true. <laughs> However, like if there, if there is a conversation to be had, she really does like give dignity to the people that she's interacting with, um, that, Hey, they may be going through trauma response. They may be at a different stage of development, uh, or, you know, understanding than I am, which is just a level of dignity that, I do, I think we all just need to learn how to balance that. Like yeah. if I'm going to engage with somebody, um, bring up another controversial woman here, but, uh, it seems like oddly enough, even though I don't think she's controversial, but Brene Brown, um, hey. gets her fair share of shit, uh, <laughs> from all sides. Yeah. Um, but she's one of the people that's like, if I'm going to have a conversation with you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you your dignity, uh, and, and allow you to, to, to be a human and honor your, your humanity in our exchange. Um, I'm not going to just, what is it worth to me to dehumanize you and just like pummel you? Um, that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, definitely. But hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll let us know what you thought. If you would love to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts because we would love, we love to hear. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We haven't gotten any rates or reviews so far, at least at the time of this recording since season two came out. And, you know, we did a thing last season and we'll do it again. If you give us a rating and review, we'll, we'll shout you out. We'll, we'll talk about how happy you made us uh, and how much we loved reading your review. Um, because and we might even work up a promotional giveaway. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Maybe we'll do something like that. So leave a, a rating and review on, on Apple podcasts, subscribe on all platforms. So I know if you're like me, you've got the Apple podcast app and Spotify and pocket catcher and stitcher. Cause I have them all just subscribe to thereafter on all of them. And then every time we drop an episode that gets us five downloads automatically you know, yeah. just from you, you know, <laughs> and go follow we can all Joe. Do our part and go follow yeah. Joe, uh, and tune in to everything that she does, um, and support her on Patreon. Um, I, I might take her Patreon. course. I think I'm going to take her course. 
yeah, I really, I, I want one of her pins. All of her Patreon uh, subscribers, uh, patrons get these little heretic pens. Mm. Um, at least she was doing that for a while as promotion. And I have several friends with Joe Lumen heretic pens, and I want one. I've got, yeah. I got envy um, of the pen. So, uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, we just want to give a shout out to Cody Copy for all of the audio production, uh, the music transitions. He puts the show all together. Yeah. Um, I want to give a shout out to Megan Crozier for being the best uh, oh. and co-hosting this show with me because I would not want to be doing it without her. So, Thanks, uh, Corland. Cosine, cosine. <laughs> uh, yeah, go follow Megan on on Twitter. Megan, Cro- uh, Me- you're not Megan Crozier on Twitter. No, you're the, the pursuing, pursuing life. life on right. on Twitter and I, Instagram. I think it's time to wrap the episode. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I'm in a talking mode. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap the episode. We'll see you guys next week. We're here every Tuesday with new episodes of There Out. All right, sounds good. That was a perfect ending. ending.